Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask them the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, this is Adrian Hernandez, and I'm one of the NIH Collaboratory um, uh, Grand Rounds moderators. And today uh, we're here with several people from Survivor Corps uh, to reflect and discuss what they did uh, recently to address um, patient experiences seeking medical care around COVID-19. So I'm here with uh, Dinah, uh, Natalie, Nick, who will be reflecting on what they've had to do to address these issues. So welcome to our podcast. And let me start off first with uh, Diana. Can you just tell us a little bit of how things started? Yeah, so actually we are the largest patient advocacy movement in the world, but oddly enough, we did not start out as a patient advocacy movement. I was one of the first people in the New York area to get a positive diagnosis of COVID and one of the first people in the country to come forward with my identity in early March of 2020. I ended up having a pretty average case of COVID, what I call the Tylenol and Gatorade kind. I was never hospitalized. There was nothing dramatic about it. But what set it apart was that I was early and I was very public with it. And I got a lot of media following while I was in isolation. And while I was in isolation, I became completely obsessed with the idea of convalescent plasma and how if I were to be one of the first survivors, that I would have the opportunity to possibly save lives by donating my plasma, by partnering with science, by engaging in every trial and study that was available. And if I had that power, imagine what a coalition of people could do. When I came out of isolation, New York was on fire. The start of April 2nd or so, and I received the first antibody test in America. I was one of the first plasma donors. And I started Survivor Corps in a way to connect patients with science and collect plasma and neutralize what I was afraid was going to become a free market where there would be competition among plasma collectors. And in order to neutralize that market, we needed collaboration. So that was the start of Survivor Corps. On March 24th of 2020, I started it with the mission of mobilizing an army of survivors to donate plasma and support science. Natalie and Nick, uh, tell us about how you all got involved. Well, before you know the pandemic really hit, the type of research that I've always done is to try to understand patients' experiences with the disease. And the way that I often do that is by going online to online health communities where people talk with other patients. And it's a great way of you know, capturing data about the problems patients are facing and to understand what they really need and what they're really thinking. So when started to hear on the news about COVID and it's starting to spread around the world, I was online obsessively trying to read patients' firsthand experiences with the disease. And it was immediately obvious that the symptoms that they were reporting for many people, they were not going away. They're having really unusual things you wouldn't expect from a more flu-like virus to having like heart problems, crushing headaches that would last for months. And I just knew that we had to start researching this. We, you know, we had to learn from patients as quickly as possible because, you know, it would take a lot longer to do things like clinical studies. 
So I found Survivor Corps, which was very quickly the largest and just most informative and wonderful place for people who had COVID to meet online. And I emailed all the admins that I could until they finally put me in touch with Diana. And we've been working together to do COVID research ever since. Terrific. And, and Nick, uh, when did you get involved? I got involved about three and a half weeks after my wife committed suicide in our house after a 13 month battle with long COVID that left her completely in excruciating 24 hour, 24 hour a day pain and the inability to sleep anymore. Um, I was in a, I was in a tailspin, um, but I did manage to send her obituary into the Hollywood trades. She had been a screenwriter. To my surprise, her obituary went viral within an hour around the world, and um, Diana at Survivor Corps read it and tweeted about it. And as I was going through my wife's phone, she had a Twitter account. I saw Diana. I saw her tweet, and I remembered my wife mentioning Diana several times in Survivor Corps in the last six months of her life, and that she was very impressed by them. And I, I thought I would just reach back out to Diana. Um, she responded to me, I sort of said it, you know, I'm here to help hopefully prevent this from happening to somebody else. And we've been working together ever since. Well, thanks uh, for sharing um, how you all came together. Um, maybe the next question I'd like to go through you all, you all were really pioneers, you know, bringing together people who had the lived experience of unfortunately having COVID people who've cared for loved ones who had COVID and have had major problems and researchers who are really motivated to try to get answers uh, together. Tell us a little more about what you all learned in uh, creating Survivor Corps and building it out. Uh, it's a, uh, I'll say a, an important model. And what, what did you learn from doing it this way? Uh, this is Diana. I'll, I'll, I'll take that for the first stab at it, at least. Um, you know, we have from the beginning been the bridge between what's actually happening on the ground and the policies that are being made. And unfortunately, from the beginning of this pandemic, there has been a chasm between real world evidence and the policies that are um, in effect uh, that we are living by. And we, I felt that, you know, Natalie and I together had the ability to close that gap. Um, you know, when people were doing fever scans all over the place, I mean, that was medical theater. We put out a paper last October, maybe Natalie, when was it that said what percentage of the general, of, 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 um, symptomatic, um, what was it? Symptomatic people who were actually contagious, what percentage of them actually had a fever? And that's when we're talking about when once they're symptomatic, it was something like 7%, which just showed that we were using yesterday's tools to try to solve today's problems. And we have been the canary in the COVID coal mine from the beginning because of that. And what we did as a result was we redefined what it means to be a citizen scientist. And we have redefined it as citizen scientist collaboration. So we have studies going on with top researchers in the world that is based on our Facebook polling data. Um, we 
started a study at Yale with Dr. Krumholtz on on these neurological issues, the same things that led Nick's wife to take her own life. You know, you cannot watch those videos and not be moved to do something about it. And when Dr. Krumholtz said, you know, if you can find me 20 patients, I will run a study. We had a cohort of 150 patients for him within 24 hours. And so the IRB should be coming in any day. And instead of having to wait, we will have that cohort ready to go because while Yale can't recruit while they're waiting for an IRB, we can. And so we have that cohort ready to go. And this is science at warp speed. And I use that those that, those words intentionally. Um, this is a new model of cooperation and through it, it has to be done in a way where science, scientists are not taken off of their pedestal, but they are brought down to eye level and they treat patients with respect and not like they're, people are not subjects. They're not rats. They are people and you have to bring them along for the ride. Let them be involved. Don't use them, but engage with them and let them learn along with the scientists because never has a population of lay people been so interested in science. And in the long run, what we will get out of that is rebuilding trust in the scientific method. And hopefully we will regain trust. So if this, God forbid, ever happens again, we won't have the kind of vaccine hesitancy because the more engagement we have with science and the more transparency there is, the more trust we will get. So you all have been really you know, putting together um, citizens on the ground with scientists uh, around the ecosystem uh, to get to the, the best answers for people, understanding the long-term impact of COVID-19, but also uh, some of the barriers that uh, may exist uh, for getting uh, new therapies. Monoclonal antibodies is an example of that, where um, uh, people don't have as much access and, uh, and there has been evidence around this, and then also the uncertainty of what may be able to be prevented for a long-term uh, COVID. So, so Natalie, from a researcher perspective, uh, how has it been working together with all these citizens and patients and caregivers uh, in this program for bringing science and trust together? Well, it's been, one of the greatest honors of my life because, you know, I developed a survey and Diana and, you know, everyone at Survivor Corps really helped me to make the questions really fantastic questions. But, you know, we had well over 5,000 long haulers take a survey that could have taken each of them two hours or more. It was extremely detailed. We're analyzing new data from it, you know, continuously. And these are people that when you read their stories from what they've posted in the Facebook group are incredibly ill and are facing so much uncertainty, many of them unable to keep their jobs, even their family members may not understand what they're going through. And if a researcher hasn't worked directly with patients or survivors in this way before, I just want to say that people who are suffering and yet so willing to give of their time it's really our duty as researchers to, you know, to go there and, and meet them where they are and to work with them and to really collaborate in the way that Diana has described. Because the things that we've been able to learn in just over a year have really helped to define the symptoms that are long COVID and to start to define the way that 
COVID impacts people and their health and their jobs and their lives. So I guess the experience for me has been that, you know, I'm a researcher, but I'm reaching out to people who are at the worst point of their lives, and yet they're still willing to give so much to get answers. And I think that this is the model that not only will help us do better science and faster, but it's it's an ethical model for doing research so that, like Diana said, we're bringing the participants along with us and we're working together. Can I, can I add one piece on that? I, sure. I, I think that one thing that's really important to remember and has been lost in the narrative of this pandemic is that this is the first time in modern medical history, so far as I know, I'm no medical historian, but where we have completely cut out the general practitioner from the medical landscape. And we've relied from day one on the emergency room as our first line of medical defense. And what ended up happening as a result is all of our studies, all medical studies, all of our data was only based on hospitalized patients who were a small subset of the general population who had had COVID and had a very different disease trajectory because they received, they received therapeutics that the rest of us didn't. And so by extrapolating data based on hospitalized patients and applying it to the population at large, there were mistakes being made. And that's why we needed to bring the voice of the 95% of people or whatever it is who are not hospitalized because they are and tracking their experiences and tracking them retrospectively and prospectively. Agreed. There was a lot of attention going from the inpatient environment in the ER, but not uh, the uh, other 80% that was having COVID. Let me uh, turn to Nick to ask, based on the experience for the over a year, uh, we're in a fourth surge. What's going to be really important going forward in terms of how we bring or develop answers uh, for uh, patients and their families uh, related to COVID-19? Nick, what what needs to happen? Uh, well, I mean, what really needs to happen first is uh, the NIH needs to release those funds it's sitting on so that actual real research can begin. And the secondary reason for that is a psychological one. People who are suffering from long COVID right now need hope. They really need to feel like there is some sort of a... Uh, plan on the horizon that's going to help them uh, deal with these symptoms and also deal with all of the other issues they're dealing with, like not being able to sleep. I mean, you know, the the, the latest uh, White House initiative on disability for long COVID was very, very positive, but there's a lot of other things that have to happen. We also have to start dealing with the issues of the blood supply, specifically regarding um Organ donation. My wife was an organ donor and I fought tooth and nail against having her long COVID organs donated because the state took over and didn't even want to admit she had COVID and her organs are in somebody else. We need to start treating it like we did with AIDS in the 1980s, making sure the organ supply is clean. We need to rethink pain and sleep management for people who can't sleep right now, which you can't sleep, you can't heal. We are going to have a surge in Suicides, and I can tell you this because I hear every single day from people who are at a point like where my wife was, where they are desperate, they can't sleep, they don't know what to do, their doctors are gaslighting them. I mean, those are the things that have to happen. But I mean, it has to start with giving people hope. And doctors really need to understand when they meet with a COVID patient, 
they are breaking the Hippocratic Oath by not giving that person hope when they first meet with them. They are literally sending them down a path to depression and potentially suicide. Well, Nick, uh, thanks for uh, those insights. And so want to um, go ahead and summarize here what I've learned today and also from you all in our collaboratory Grand Rounds is that you know, we are in unprecedented times. It's really important to come together with uh, patients, patient community, caregivers, researchers to address um, COVID-19 together and really be informed um, by the experiences that people have uh, had and have observed and uh, recognize that uh, there is humility that we have to have uh, around science. We don't necessarily know everything and we don't necessarily know um, all the long-term implications um, around COVID-19. So having uh, groups come together will be really uh, critical for that. So thanks everyone for spending time with us on this uh, podcast. And please join us uh, for our next podcast as we continue to highlight important changes in the research world. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website. And we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time.